Ho, 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 you thought we were done? Never, <laughs> never, ever. Welcome to episode five of Starstruck, Close Encounters of the Awkward Kind. That's five, never done. Cinco. Cinco, five, five. Are we just screen now? Five, <laughs> Wait, we could do other languages too. Um, yes. Sank. Mm-hmm. Cinque. What Cinque is that? Italian. Okay. Do you believe it? I don't know. Yes, five, sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. That sounds right. What up? Another language? Oh, me? Yeah, yeah. Um, five. Mm-hmm. That's uh, <laughs> that's uh, English. I can only get to four in Japanese. I went Ishni Sanshi. Go. Go? I think so. Really? Yeah. But How- I used to take uh, martial arts as a kid. And you knew all the. The Japanese. We would do up to 10. I don't know. Ishni, Sanshi, go. I could be wrong. The person who taught me was white. I don't know. That is so true. (laughs) He could could have been saying anything. He could have been raised up in... Oh, that I ruined it. I was going to say the name of the land in Iron Fist. He could have been raised there and it wouldn't matter. I'm so mad at Iron Fist. Why did he have powers and none of the other people had powers? Because he's a dumbass and he's made up and I can't stand him. That's why. He needs to go get out of the Marvel Universe. I wasn't into Iron Fist in the comic book. I don't know if he could have possibly been as dumb as he is in the TV show. But also, all of these people are made up, so they could be anybody. What What do you mean made up? Huh? What do you mean they're made up? These Marvel people? (laughs) Did you think think, uh, Thanos was based on (laughs) real events? (laughs) Not in this galaxy. Oh, so you're positing that somewhere there's a movie studio run by like like uh, Captain America and Tony Stark and, and telling their own stories, all the the aliens, and then they make up stories about like regular people in their universe where they're all superheroes like that. Mm-hmm. They just make movies about like Regu- like documentaries. Bethany and Nick <laughs> making a podcast. They they're like, oh, I know. I mean, if you didn't have superpowers, what would you do? And then that's how the that's what they do with all the movies. Oh. If, if I didn't, you have, didn't superpowers, have superpowers, I mean, what imagine would you do? You're trying to get from your house to your friend's house. What do you do? You want to just fly? Well, I use my hammer and I fly, <laughs> swirl it around and bring that bridge here. Hulk, I bamf. I just jump from here to there. I just well, I puff into a blue cloud and I end up over there. These people, wait, you called it bamfing because that's what they wrote. <laughs> Holy shit. That's hilarious. Did you just call me out on that? Oh my That's god. That's hilarious. Because in the comic book, Nightcrawler goes bam. Bam. Because you know what that sounds like, right? When yeah. they write it, you're like, oh. Yeah. It goes bam. I, w- I would love to be one of those people in the, that does comic books that comes up with the sound. Oh, yes. Like, so, okay, so that's a metallic gear uh, jamming with because uh, Bruce Banner dropped his pen in there. Uh, crink it. <laughs> K-R-N-I-K-T Crink it Crink it Scree That's a really heavy metal thing Dragging across a heavy metal Scree Squirsh Squirsh Is really thick Something squishing out Like it's not like So it's like It's like Squeezing somebody's like face. their brains and yeah. their eyes squish. It could just go squish. 
That's what I've noticed. Sometimes they'll take regular words and change the vowel or add an R or something in there. It's and it's a different word. Well, it's hard to make up all new words all the time, right? What? No. The, the whole universe <laughs> they created is it's all made up words. Why do you keep going back to that? Marvel's not real. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, we found out all this time. I fully, fully believe. Oh, you? <laughs> and I just like, I keep staring at you like, dude, are you a flat earther too? Like, what the fuck? Why do you keep saying Marvel's not Wait, real? Bethany, do you think, <laughs> do you think this stuff is real? Oh. What do you mean? Do I think Hold this stuff on. is real? I'm gonna What's... turn this off in a racist because <laughs> nobody can know. <laughs> Just promise me you won't tell anybody these things that you said, Bethy. Please, it's <laughs> for both of our safety. In this episode, Will Noonan, Laura Severs, and Wes Hazard. Enjoy. Welcome to Starstruck. Welcome, everybody. We love you so much. Um. Anyway, what's up with you? Oh man, you know. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll tell. Uh, we'll, this is all about sharing stories, so I will. I'll share my story now. This happened uh, about a year ago. Um, I had the opportunity to perform comedy at Boston Calling. If you're not familiar with it, it's a, it's a huge music festival that happens here. I had a Ferris wheel. It, it was. It was great. I was very excited. It was big. It was a big deal. Yes, Bethany yeah. was also uh, on this on one of the shows. I was there, but more importantly, there was a Ferris wheel. Like you said, that right. makes the thing a big deal. Right. Festival. Okay. Festival. Had a Ferris yeah, wheel. but if you're like a festival that could put a Ferris wheel up. Right. Those things aren't cheap, and you have to assemble them. And get so you yeah. know that they get money. They have a bigger Ferris wheel this year, so I only what? I assume it's because of the work that we did. That's true. That's true. <laughs> we blew that shit up. And Hannibal Burris was was hosting the whole thing and like headlining some of the shows. And I went back to there's a, a lot of trailers like kind of in a circle where all the famous people are staying. And in the middle, there's some food. There's drinks. There's a, a rack full of uh, free shirts and hats. I took a lot of the free stuff. Because they had shopping bags. Too. Right. I missed out. It was out like, on... hey, take a lot. Here's a shopping bag. <laughs> uh, while I'm looking at some of the free stuff and, and, and jamming it into my backpack, I hear uh, a voice that I recognize. It's Hannibal Burris's DJ. He travels with a DJ named Tony Trim. I had never seen him before, but they have a podcast that I listen to a lot, and I recognize his voice. And I, I whipped around when I heard his voice. He's talking. I whipped around. I said, "Tony," <laughs> just like that. And he had been looking at a hat. He looked up. He's like, "Oh, hey, what's up?" I was like, "Hey, man." Um, now there's a thing that happens when I get. <laughs> there's a thing that happens when I get nervous. Is I talk without taking a breath first. So I just ran out of air while talking to Tony. I was like, Tony, hey, what's up? I'm one of the comedians on the show tonight. <laughs> he said, what? Excuse me? I said, oh, I'm one of the comedians on the show uh, tonight. And I, I love your podcast. So he said, hey, man, uh, really cool. Looking forward to see you at the show. Cool. Uh, time comes for the show. And I'm nervous and excited. And then... Um, Hannibal is already up on stage doing his thing, opening the show, and then I hear him introduce me, 
He said, uh, the next comedian, uh, the funny guy, uh, saw some of his stuff on the internet. He has some interesting perspectives. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, give it up for Nick Chambers. And I went out and I performed and I came back stage afterwards and I thought that he just said like, oh, I watched some of his stuff, just some bullshit that a host would say to just get the audience, be like, yeah, whatever. I, I thought he was lying. And then afterwards, he, he's like, hey, that joke that you had about uh, Little Mermaid, yeah, I thought that was funny, you know, you had some good stuff. And I was like, oh, oh, thank you. And I started to talk to him the same things that I had talked to Tony about, like the podcast and the, the music and everything. And um, I, I forgot that I was there as a fellow comedian. Like, we are comedians. <laughs> On the same show. Right. I just him flipped. having seen your stuff and liking it. Right, I overshot and went to fan mode. I was like, oh, and, and uh, the, the episode when you guys like did a whole rock off that was so. And he's like, okay, yeah, yeah, uh, I'm working on music. Yeah, yeah, okay. And he goes, he moves to the side and starts talking to uh, a woman who worked with the the festival. They're just you know figuring out stuff, I guess, for later in the day or travel or whatever it was. I wasn't listening. I was just standing there patiently waiting for Hannibal to come back, and then I'll be like, all right, now I'll do the, the comedian, like, we'll just talk. Because like that, I got all that out of the way, the weird stuff, now I'm just gonna be cool with him. So I'm just waiting patiently to talk, um, but it wasn't far away enough from them, so it was just like, I'm hovering, listening to <laughs> Hannibal Burris's business. And so I see him like talk, talking and kind of looking over at me, glancing over every now and then. Lansing, and he keep, keeps talking to the woman who, who worked with the festival, and uh, eventually they end their conversation, and the woman comes directly to me and is like, hey, Nick, uh, would you like to go back to the, the green room so you can watch the show from over there, far away? And I was like, oh, uh, okay, I'm, I'm being asked to leave. All right. So, so I went back. You were being offered more comfort. Right. You were being asked to leave. You're I was being, being offered, offered a comfortable the, situation. The opportunity to give Hannibal comfort. <laughs> so I, the the show ended. I left. Now I, uh, my dad, my brother, his wife, and my girlfriend, they were there watching the show. So they're out uh, outside of the the building where the show was, waiting for me to come out. And Hannibal shows up with like a friend of his, just walking out, and he starts talking to my family, and um, my brother thought that he could, you know, record this at the moment. But he he thought I could get away with recording this, but he didn't think everyone can see my hand. Like every you can see what I'm doing. He brought his hand up with his phone slowly, like up by his chest. And like he's so like so cartoon villainy. Like he has his phone pressed against his chest, <laughs> and he's trying to press the record button. And immediately Hannibal's like, "What are you trying to record? Or something? What are you? You recording?" And we're like, "Oh no, I, I just um I was looking for something uh, on my phone." <laughs> to Hannibal's credit, he still stayed there and talked with them for a couple more minutes. And my dad, who is uh, from Jamaica, doesn't know who. Hannibal Burris is. I doubt he knew anything that was going on. <laughs> um, he says, so, so, so you're famous, right? He said, I mean, I guess. He's like, so how come you don't have like 
security or nothing. You just walk out by yourself. And Hannibal was like, I don't need security. And then my dad threw a fake elbow <laughs> inches away from this man's face and said, you need security. <laughs> so this awkwardness is generational. All the men in my family have it. It's everybody. It's everybody. Um, but that thing, yeah, that thing, like, you're there doing the same thing as the person, but your brain is like, oh, no, I'm not good enough to be here or whatever. Like, they're going to find me out. Like, I had that same thing happen. Um, I was modeling. I was an art major, and I wanted to go to Europe and see the things that we studied in school, but my family's poor and uh, as fuck. And so I got this opportunity to model, and I was like, yes, I will take that job and go to see all the museums and cathedrals of Europe, not realizing that I would have to be working as a model while I was there, right? And um, apparently I wasn't very cut out to be a model, and I got into a fight in Paris with my agency within like three weeks and I got kicked out of Paris. And so... Um, <laughs> I got kicked out of the backstage. You got kicked out, I of, got a, kicked out of a whole city. city. <laughs> They're like, you're no good for here. You must go home. And I was like, do not send me home. I'm over this ocean now. So find some place to send me. And they were probably like, who could deal with this? Italians. And they, they sent me to Milan to model. And I went on this casting for Giorgio Armani. Everybody knows Giorgio Armani, right? I was like, I am not going to be what your version of a model seems like. And so I used to wear my Dr. Martens every single day and um, overalls or leggings or whatever. And I had short, short, short hair. And so, and I'd get these castings that anybody else would be happy about. But I'd be like, well, whatever, I'll go. And I'd like stomp into the... Just begrudgingly being like, a supermodel. I'm so mad that you booking me for this, whatever. So, but when I walk into the door of Emporio Armani, that's a little bit different because that's like a designer that I really, he's crazy talented and I kind of idolize him, you know? So even just being at the Emporio casting, I got crazy nervous, right? And I, um, they said, okay, Bethany, walk it that way and then walk it back this way. And so I start to walk, and I'm so nervous. Like, I'm, I'm walking like, a, like some kind of jaunty zombie robot thing. It's horrible, absolutely horrible. And the woman says, well, you're sort of like a baby giraffe. Uh, not elegant at all. But maybe for Giorgio. Like, in her head somehow, she thought, maybe, maybe he can work with you. I can't, but maybe he can work with you, or maybe he will have some crazy vision for your bullshit walk. I don't know. I don't know how I made it to the next round of castings, but I skipped every cast. There's like a ton of castings in between. I skipped every casting between Emporio and, and Giorgio, and I end up at the Giorgio casting, which is at his mansion in the middle of Milan. It's an entire city block in the middle of Milan. Every model that I've ever loved is sitting on the floor with their portfolio, smoking cigarettes, just being like so casually laid back, fierce. And I start to panic, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be here. They're gonna find me out. Okay, I know what I'll do. I'll smoke like they're smoking, because I smoke. I know how to smoke, I can do that. And I, I like go to light, light my cigarette backwards, I light the filter. It's, it's like making like poison, you know, chemical smoke. <laughs> 
And one of the models like just points to me like, you idiot. And I go, oh, <laughs> sorry. And then to fix it, I turn the cigarette around and put it in my mouth, like the lit end. And then um, everyone's like, ew, stay away from her. And then they call, they call my group. We all got numbers and we get called by group, right? So while I'm trying to like sort this out, they say, chingue. And then everyone with fives has to stand up and we follow them through this maze into a massive dressing room that's really, it's a huge dressing room. So we get into this dressing room and there's like, I, I, I can't even like Beverly Peel and Nadja, like these, these models from, that were huge back in the day of um, like the supermodels are all there. And the direction is, Andresa, put on the body stocking and the shoes and the blazer and wait in line. So we had to un fully undress and put on a full body stocking, like from feet all the way up. Is it, and it was like tight material, like stocking, all the way up, little straps on your shoulders, four inch strappy heel sandals, like with one little, one little thing across the toe and an ankle wrap with stockings on and this blazer, and they tell us to line up, and like two people before, two people before um, you go out onto the runway, someone gives you the direction. So you will go down the runway in the middle present, go to the end, spin present, lose your blazer, come back present for Mr. Armani, and come back. And I was like, what, what, what? And then the model before me is Beverly Peel, who was a huge model at the time, and Giorgio sees her in the doorway and says, Ha, ah, Beverly, you don't have to walk, you're in. And she goes, okay, and she leaves. And now the person I was going to watch is gone. And Giorgio says, Bethany, and it's my turn. And I am honestly going to, I'm just going to shit through this body stocking. Like, that's, that is definitely going to happen. And now I'm just, I'm just like counting the moments of my, because once that happens, right, you know what I'm saying? Like once you shit yourself in front of Giorgio Armani, your life becomes separated into two parts. It's before you shit yourself in front of Giorgio Armani and after you shit yourself in front of Giorgio. So I'm just, I'm just like savoring the couple of seconds before I actually shit my pants in front of him, right? I'm walking down the runway, my feet are slipping because I'm wearing stockings and four inch heels. And the runway is like this plastic lit up from the bottom disco runway like from Studio 54 or something. So my shoes are also sliding on the runway. My feet are sliding in my shoes. My knees are shaking so hard and just like whacking into each other. Baby giraffe style. Ba baby giraffe, <laughs> you're not elegant. And I, I get to the middle, I decide that there's no way I could present. Present is like do like a fancy pose, like a, like a hot pose. You've seen it on America's Next Top Model. They, they like stomp down the runway and then they stop and like give you a scowl and then go to the end and spin. So I decide I'm shaking too hard and the shit's like right there at the, at the opening. If I stop and present, it's going to be a disaster. I'm just going to go straight for the, the, go to the end, take the blazer off and come back. I get to the end and I'm so terrified. Like I'm so, 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 so panicked that my hands are clenched fists. And I drop the blazer, like it's this, it's this like move that you learn. You like shrug your shoulders. Most blazers are lined in like satin material, right? So you shrug your shoulders back. The blazer slips off. You have pointy hands. It slides off of your arms. And then in the last seconds before your blazer drops to the ground, you catch it with your two fingers and then you throw it over your shoulder, right? So I shrug my blazer off. My fists are clenched. The blazer turns inside out. 
and the sleeves stay on my fist. So I'm like, I can still save it, I can still save it, I can still, and I start yanking my fist to come out of the blazer, but it's a beautifully, perfectly fitted blazer made by Giorgio Armani, and I can't get my fist out. So I'm, shru- I'm yanking, 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 yanking. It looks like I'm doing some kind of insane dance. And then um, I go to turn around, and my foot falls out of the shoe, and I, I like hobble back to the center of the stage, and I'm like, I'm not going out like this. And I turn around, I throw my arms up in the air with my blazer stuck on my fist, right in Giorgio Armani's face, and go, ta-da! <laughs> and Giorgio Armani just belly laughs at me and goes, I'll bet Danny, see you next year. <laughs> <laughs> and I hobble back past Beverly Peel and Nadja, and they're just disgusted. They're so disgusted. They're like, how did you do that? And I was like, maybe I'll be a comedian. <laughs> but he never had me back. But I saw that the, the year after that, everyone had the fist ball on the runway. The so ball, yeah. And one shoe on and one shoe off. Right, right. Hell yeah. His boot cut, uh, blazer sleeves, they just flared out at the end. <laughs> I remember that one. It's a successful one. How about we get this thing started and bring it on? Very funny comedian. He has a great podcast called Hypothetically. You guys make some noise right now for Will, Will Newton. Thank you very much. Thank you guys for coming. Nice to nice to meet you. Uh, yeah, my my story starts off sad. Uh, broke. I had a breakup. Right. You know, some breakups you don't give a shit about. You're just like whatever. I'll find someone. And other breakups you're like. <laughs> You like throw, like you ugly cry and freak out. I called my buddy Corey Rodriguez, who's like way more of a man than me. Like he's a tough guy, doesn't get sad about breakups. Called him up, I was like, Corey, I'm freaking out. Actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. So here's the story. I booked the biggest thing in my career five years ago. I got a spot on this television show, national television. Live comedy is called Gotham Comedy Live. I was really excited to do it. It was like a big deal. All these other comics had done it. I felt like, when am I going to do it? I had auditioned for it twice. Couldn't get on it. Finally got booked. I was like, yes. And life was going so good. I had this awesome girlfriend. And I was uh, 100% convinced she was the one. I was shopping for engagement rings. And I had planned on doing my first national TV spot and then proposing to my girlfriend right after I got off stage. That was the plan. So, you know, when you have a big comedy spot, you like go out, you get ready. You run the set, it's five minutes. I went out every night, I'm getting ready. It was a whole thing. So I was getting super ready <laughs> to do this thing. One day, I'm driving down Calm Ave in Boston and everything in my life was like, man, man, I was like, I got a great girl. I got, I'm gonna be on TV in a few days. Everything. Could, be, could not be better than it is right now. And then I get a call. It's from my girlfriend at the time. And she had gone to LA for two weeks <laughs> to audition for a couple shows. She's an actress. They're not good people. <laughs> You'll find out in one second why. 
Because in the two weeks, she had gone to LA to take class, take a couple meetings, meet a few people. She had met so many people, some of those people had dicks, and she liked those dicks. <laughs> she thought those dicks could take her to cool places in Hollywood and maybe make her a star. So, I was kicked to the curb, man. I was with this chick for like three years. I thought she was just going on a vacation. She said, I love LA. I'm not coming back to Boston. Good luck on TV in a couple days. Two days. I was two days away from going on television for the first time live. It's live television too, I don't know if I mentioned that. <laughs> so if you have a mental breakdown, the world sees it. And that was in my mind. So I went, you know, back then, I used to have real bad panic attacks all the time. Uh, like after this breakup, I started having them all day, every day. And I knew I had to be on TV in like two days. So I was like, what the fuck do I do? I was like, just grin and bear it, you know? I would eat Cliff Bars. That's good breakup food, man. You can like crush that shit into a ball and just eat it, right? And then it's like, you can chew it and no saliva. You're too sad to produce saliva. So then you just pour some like water, switch it around, swallow, you'll live one more day. <laughs> it's the best. If you're, if you, next breakup, just crush a fucking cliff bar in your hand. Call it the name of whoever you miss and eat it. <laughs> so, I was so messed up about this breakup. I was calling people. Like, I was calling people late at night, in the middle of the night, like, calling up old comedians, like, who are in their 60s and 70s and shit, and being like, what do you do when a girl breaks up with you two days before you go on live television? and you were gonna propose. And they were all like, I don't know, that's not a fucking problem anyone has. <laughs> Sounds like you dated a crappy chick for a couple of years, you're paying for it. They had no sympathy for me, any of these dudes. But I remember I called this one guy, Joe Matarese, really calmed me down. He's, in, he's, like he's kind of like a mental patient too. And he was like, well, it's gonna be fine, just go down there, do the show, blah, blah, blah. But I was like, for some reason, I was really convinced I was gonna freak out and just like not do it. So I found one of my friends, I got this buddy Pat, who's not super strong mentally himself. <laughs> but he's there for me, he's my buddy. But he was going through a pretty depra bad depression himself at the time. But I needed company. I needed someone to go to New York with me and film this shit. So I woke Pat up from his depression and I was like, hey man, I'll give you $100 cash. <laughs> if you come to New York with me today. And if I, if I try and turn around, if I try and come back, if I try and quit, you gotta make me go on fucking TV and tell jokes. And he looked at me kinda like, yeah, I'll do that for you, but you look fucking crazy right now. Like, <laughs> you haven't slept in two days, you got cliff bar crumbs all over your face. But he, he's my bro, so he's like, yes, man, let's do it. We'll get up tomorrow morning at like seven in the morning, we'll drive to New York, we'll do this shit. So we do it, you know. Next morning, get up, I didn't sleep all night. I hadn't slept in like two days. I'm supposed to go on TV for the first time. I was shaking, it was, it was horrible. You know, but Pat's like, we're gonna do it, man, it's gonna be fine. We get in the car, we start driving to New York. And the guy who was supposed to host the comedy show I was on that night was Jim Florentine. He's a comedian, you may have heard of him, he was on Crank Yankers. <laughs> Seems like a big Crank Yankers crowd. <laughs> So, he's, he's awesome, I was psyched to meet him, but I get a text when I'm on my way down there, that's like, 
Jim Florentine's not going to be on the show. You got a new host tonight, Dave Coulier. <laughs> Uncle Joey from Full House. Cut it out, guy. Full House, America's Funniest Home video. No, America's Funniest People. Short-lived spin-off of America's Funniest Home videos. And uh, I was like immediately filled with fucking hope, you know? I was like, finally, some good luck. Because if there's anyone I need right now, it's my Uncle Joey. <laughs> I was like, I am so sad. I feel like I'm never going to find love again. I feel like my life's in shambles. And I love sitcoms. I grew up watching Full House. And I was like, I bet this is going to be a great day. Maybe. So we get to New York. It was really touch and go. We park the car. <laughs> and we go in, we, you know, which is hard in New York. And then uh, we get in the comedy club. And we got to be there for like hours until we're filming. There's rehearsals and stuff like that. And I'm walking around. And I'm sick to my stomach. I'm so nervous to do this stand-up comedy. I'm going through this bad breakup. Everything is going bad. <laughs> I actually go down the stairs and go to the bathroom. Right? It's not pretty. I won't even describe it. But it was like a bad episode of Crank Yankers. <laughs> it was really just not good. But <laughs> I got a really bad bloody nose while I was sort of in this horrible situation. I'm sitting on the toilet, pants around my ankles, pretty much at my lowest. <laughs> Blood's pouring down my nose. It gets all over my underwear. I'm trying to clean that up. And as I'm doing that, I had the first laugh that I'd laugh. The first time I laughed in like three or four days, I laughed because I was like, man, I'm about to go on national TV in front of millions of people, and none of them will know that I have bloody underwear. <laughs> Not a one. It's pretty sweet. I thought that was a little bit of a cherry on a shitty Sunday of a day. But I go in, you know, it's all figured. It's just a little bit, but a bloody nose is nasty. That's how big of a mess I was. I go uh, outside, I pull myself together, I put some cold water on my face, and I walk out the door, and I'm in a hallway by myself, and then I see a dude walk in. And it's like a dude with glasses and a leather jacket. And it was Dave, it was Dave Coulier, Uncle Joey, who I've never met before, but I feel like I know because I've watched him on TV trillions of hours. And he goes, hey, is this where the comedy show is tonight? <laughs> Literally just like that. Hey, is this where the comedy show is that I'm hosting tonight? And I was like, Dave Coulier, this is where it is. And he's like, hey, great to meet you. And I'm like, my name is Will. And then someone's like, hey, guys, we got to do the rehearsal. So I immediately am like, should I tell Dave Coulier that I'm going through hell right now? Because <laughs> things are going pretty good. We just talked about hockey for a couple minutes. I don't know if I want to fuck this up. But I'm like, really, like we're, like, we're doing a rehearsal in a room just like this. And he's like over here like, so I stand here or whatever. What's going on? And I'm just like two feet away from him. Like, I bet he could solve all my problems. <laughs> Like before the first commercial break, I bet he could. So I just kind of like waited for like a minute <laughs> when Dave Coulier was like by himself. And I was like, hey, uh, big fan, whatever. He's like, oh, thanks, Will. He's one of those dudes who remembers your name the first time he meets you. And then every time you meet him after that, he's like, hello, Will. And you're like, you're an angel. <laughs> he's like, what's up, Will? What's going on? And I was like, Got a bit of a problem. I'm just going through a really tough breakup right now. I was gonna marry this chick, and uh, and like it just didn't work out. She 
I was really gonna propose like after this show. I put the down payment and shit. And now I don't know what I'm gonna do with the rest of my life. And Uncle Joey just looked at me just like he did Michelle and Stephanie and DJ. And it's surreal when you're looking into the same eyes as like getting help with a problem from a guy who's done that 150 times in syndication. And he looks at me right in the eyes and he says, Will, the thing with women is there's always a fucking other one. Stop being such a bitch. <laughs> and I was like, there's blood in my underpants, Uncle Joey. <laughs> Thank you guys very much. I appreciate it. Storyteller coming to the stage is a hilarious comedian. Here tonight, telling a story. You guys make some noise right <laughs> now for Laura, Laura Severs! Um, okay, so my story takes place in 20, August of 2016. Uh, 2016 was an incredible year for Guns N' Roses. I don't know if you heard, uh, but Slash and Duff reunited with Axel, and uh, everything was right in the world. And I had been waiting for this moment for like 24 fucking years. So I was super, super pumped. We saw them twice in Vegas, twice at Gillette, and then they were finishing out their North American tour in San Diego, and I said, we're gonna do that too. So we flew into San Diego on August 20th, which was my birthday, and my best friend Bernadette and her husband Phil met us at the airport, we got back to their house, and uh, Bernadette had bought me this beautiful chocolate cake, and uh, that is completely irrelevant to the story, but it was just jarring, because Bernadette doesn't fucking do anything. So um, <laughs> it was pretty great. Um, so we laced around the house and just did a whole lot of nothing, and um, on Monday morning, the Monday was the concert, it was uh, the 22nd. On Monday morning, we all got up, and uh, we started our preparations at like nine o'clock in the morning, even though the show, the concert was not until like 7 p.m., but we just need to be like super prepared for some reason. So I got up and made my famous, you know, dill dip, because that's what I have, a dill dip that I'm known for. Um, <laughs> Bernadette packed the burgers and the hot dog. I mean, you know, we just did all those like tailgating things that you do. And then out of nowhere, Phil produced a bag full of uh, gummies, like edible gummies. And I was like, woohoo, we're gonna fucking party now. I was so excited because we were away from our children and when we're home, we have a rule that only one of us can be messed up at a time because kids are idiots and they're always gonna hurt themselves and one of us has to be sober at all times so we can go to children's. That's just fucking common sense. But we're in California now. All bets are off. Like we're getting fucked up. So Phil pulls out the gummies. I just, I don't know how to even eat them because I don't do that often or ever. So I was just like putting them in my mouth like they were candy. He's like, no, 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 you need to stop that. Like, you, nope, just one. No, okay, you took four? That's plenty. And I was like, okay. So anyway, we were getting ready, you know, whatever, loading up the car. Um, we, we load up, he has an F-150 that's just one of those huge monster trucks that's completely unnecessary. Um, we get in the truck and Bernadette's like, oh, I forgot my phone. And I'm like, oh, you fuck, how do you get your phone, you idiot? Uh, you know, well, anyway, so she forgot her phone. So we drive to Qualcomm. We decide to get there at three o'clock in the afternoon for some reason. 
I have no idea why we were that early. That's absurd. We were like, it's gonna be crazy. It's gonna be packed. Not a soul in the parking lot. Not one other human. And then Phil was like, oh yeah, it's Monday. People are working. And I'm like, yes. People have jobs. That's correct. Shit. So Qualcomm Stadium parking lot is, is round like the stadium itself, like it's circular. So we're in this monstrous truck and we're driving this way. And up ahead, I notice this golf cart like coming towards us. And I was like, huh, that's weird. I wonder who's in that. Probably just security. I don't really think any of that. I was too stoned. But anyway, so I just see this golf cart coming towards us. And in my head, I said, oh, Axl Rose is in that golf cart. And then it got closer, and then I said to my husband, I'm like, Axl Rose is in that golf cart. And he was like, huh? And I'm like, well, Axl Rose is in that golf cart. And then I said to Phil, Axl Rose is in that golf cart. And the golf cart's getting closer and closer. And then I fucking lost my shit, and I went, Axl Rose is in that golf cart! And Phil slammed the brakes, because now they had passed us. He slid, I mean, we literally, like, it was dangerous. We're like, Arr! He whips this F-150 around, comes up behind the golf cart, then proceeds to pull up beside the golf cart. And then I proceed to do the single most humiliating Boston-y thing that I've ever done in my life. I leaned, I rolled out, I rolled down the window, my friend Bernadette rolled down her window, and I'm screaming at my husband, where's the phone? Do you have my phone? I need my phone. And then I have my phone, and my phone is super slippery all of a sudden. And I lean half my body out and I go, I look him dead in his face because he's looking at us because it's a truck hovering over him and he's like a little nervous. And there's people in the golf cart with him and they were like kind of laughing. The golf cart guy driving actually kind of slowed down a little bit. but So he's looking up at us and he's like, and I, and I lean out and I go, I came all the way from Boston. I'm going to get the shot. And then he's like, like, Boston, I'm going to get the shot. As if I was like a National Geographic photographer who was like, oh, I'm on the hunt for the elusive Malibu songbird, the Axl Rose. Like, what the fuck? I was humiliated. Um, but he was super nice. He like gave us the peace sign and he gave me like a little tiny smile. And I wanted to like kind of flip the script on feminism and be like, smile! But I, I didn't. Um... I just, I kept it, to, I, I did not do that. Um, and then they sped off and we like rolled up the windows and then Phil just sat there and we were all like, oh my God, we just saw Axl Rose. And I was like, yeah, we did. That's so fucking great. We've been following this guy across the goddamn country, spending thousands of dollars and seeing him in Vegas and Gillette. Now we, we fucking, it paid off. We saw him. And uh, I was just so happy. And you know what? The thing about Axel is, like, I never expected him to be in the parking lot at, like, 3.30 on the day of the show because old Axel was always late for everything, but new Axel doesn't play. If they say that the concert starts at 7.30, your ass best be in that seat by 7 fucking 30. I'm telling you. I've seen them seven times subsequently. I know. Um, but I just want to say that, in conclusion, um, you know... <laughs> No words were spoken, you know, between Axel and I when we made eye contact, but uh, it was longing and regret, and it was very obvious that we were supposed to be together in another life. And, um, you know, 
I mean, I think he knew that I loved him, and I, I feel like I know that he loves me. So thank you so much. <laughs> Our final storyteller this evening is not only a phenomenal storyteller, he is a hilarious comedian, and we are and he's the host of WGBH Stories from the Stage, and we have him here tonight. We are so excited to welcome to the stage Wes Hazard! So this is a series about awkward encounters, and uh, I have a story that I prepared that I'm going to tell you. I just had an awkward encounter, though. I was uh, in the bathroom about 10 minutes ago, and I turned around from the urinal, and who should be there but my father. My father. Like, I was not expecting to be there. Like, like yeah, so... Like, he just dropped out of the shadows, like, Dad? Like, what? All right, so that's what... And, like, uh, I've been performing for, like, 13 years, and uh, my father... This is literally the second time ever that my father has seen me. Not because he doesn't support, but because I have a weird thing where I feel that, like, family, it's a weird pressure, and so I never tell him about gigs. He's just like, yeah, I read about this in the paper, so I can't. So, yeah, that's uh, what I'm dealing with right now. And now I'm going to tell you this incredibly embarrassing story that uh, I did not prepare not with my father being in the room. If you're looking around for him, he looks like me, but 40 years older. All right, cool. Um... <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, so I will preface this by saying that I have Crohn's disease, which is an uh, intestinal disorder. Uh, I have it really bad. My GI doctor has said that I have 10 out of 10 Crohn's disease. And uh, in my experience since I was 16 when I was diagnosed, I have been in the hospital for more than a week on four different occasions. I've had like 36 inches of my small intestine removed. I've been in ICU, all that stuff. I only say that to let you know that I know my way around a doctor's appointment, all right? I'm a professional patient. I've had every kind of test you can ever imagine. I've been in the hospital. I live that, like that's my adult life. In and out of hospitals, I know how it goes. And I'm gonna tell you about, uh, if not the most unique, certainly the most awkward uh, doctor's medical appointment I ever had. So this is five years ago. Five years ago, uh, I had been experiencing for about uh, seven months uh, a little bit of trouble in the bathroom with the pee pee. All right, like, uh, like, yeah, it was just, I was at urination. I was having trouble urinating. So I would go to pee, and it would be like a good stream, strong stream, manly stream, all right? Uh, no problems. But then at the end, when, like, there's no more came out, I could sense that there was about 5% of the total volume just there, still in my bladder, but refusing to come out. And uh, if you're in a public men's room, you can't just be hanging out there for minutes on end. You gotta keep it moving. So like what would happen is I would know that there was more, but I wouldn't come out at that moment. I'd you know, button up, wash my hands, leave. And then like five, seven, 12 minutes later, I have to go to the bathroom all over again. And so this was happening for months and months and months. And it came uh, to a point where uh, I am a huge cinephile. I love the movies. Skyfall, James Bond movie that's two and a half hours long was coming out. And I knew I was going to be dealing with this. And as a cinephile, I'm like, I cannot miss any part of the movie. So, like, this is my plan to go see Skyfall is I went to the bathroom three times before I left the house. At 30 minutes, 15 minutes before I left, right as I was leaving. I got to the theater half an hour before the movie started. Purchased my ticket immediately, immediately peed. Hang outside the bathroom uh, creepily for five minutes. Went back in, peed again. Hung in the lobby for 15 more minutes reading a book. Then went back to pee again, thinking I would be fine, all right? I get there. 
I watched two trailers, and I'm like, ah, oh, I gotta go pee one more time, and I missed the rest of the trailers. And if you've ever gotten to a point in your life as a man where you've peed seven times in an hour, you're like, I can't do this anymore. I, there's more to life than this. I gotta fix it. So I went to go see a urologist. And, uh, it, I, you know, I set up this appointment to go see him, and a couple of things, red flags right off the bat. It's a urology appointment. I walk in the room, nurse leaves me there, all right, he'll be here shortly. First thing I notice is, there's no gown. No gown. Like, clearly you're going to have your junk out at a urology appointment. Like, you would expect to change into a gown so that, you know, that's easy. Like, no, nothing there. So I'm just in my street clothes reading a book. He comes in. Now, this speaks more to the racial bias implicit in this country because I was not expecting my urologist to be a six-foot-three black man, all right? But he was, all right? Like, so he just comes in, hey, I'm Dr. Roberts. And I'm like, okay. And, like, that's on me, all right? And... At first, I was like kind of proud. I'm like, yeah, if a black doctor, like, sisters are doing it for themselves, I'm feeling good about it, right? But then he just proceeds to be like very gruff and aggressive. Like, he was clearly competent. Like, he knew his shit, but like, he no bedside manner whatsoever. So he's like, do this, do this, do this. I'm just like, ah. So like, first thing, uh, you know, he's like standing me up and he brings over this, like, it's a, it's a lamp on like a flexible neck that he wheels over on the little cart and he brings over a waist level and he's just all up in it, all right? So he's just like poking around, like doing all this sort of stuff, like, you know, you know, poking here, poking there. At one point he like does this, like, you know, he's like judging the quality of a cantaloupe in the supermarket. Like, I don't know what this does mentally, but he's like doing it, it's like weird. And mind you, I am, there's no gown. So I'm just like standing up, pants around my ankles like this, all right? Also, I should let you know, he had told me at the beginning, hands up. So I'm just like this, hands up. This is a year and a half before Ferguson, all right? But I'm just like, hands up. Which was appropriate because it felt like I was being robbed of my dignity, all right? So I'm just like this, and he's just like, Ugh. and he just starts like seeing if anything is painful. He's like, you know, is, is this uncomfortable? And I'm like, no, is this uncomfortable? Is this uncomfortable? Is this uncomfortable? And then finally, I couldn't like the comedian suppress him. I was just like, he's like, is this uncomfortable? I'm like, well, just socially. And uh, he's like, can't do nothing about that. And I'm like, all right, fine, whatever, all right. This is my life now, I'm living this, all right? And then eventually he's like, all right, now, uh, now it's time for the prostate exam. Like, so again, a professional patient. I've been to this. I guarantee any dude in here, it does not matter your age, I can guarantee you, bet my life, I've had more prostate exams than you have had and probably will have in your entire life. It's a medical necessity. You got into it. But normally, in my experience, to facilitate it, make it feel like a medical procedure, make you like have some dignity and disassociate, what they will do is you will be in a gown. You will lay down on the table in the fetal position, knees against your chest, facing the wall. The doctor will just come up behind you, in and out, that's it. You know, get, get it done with. This guy, he just told me, uh, turn around, put your chest on the table. So I'm just like this, like, just like, like, just like, like, and like, pants around my ankles. Like, this is the scenario. Like, this dude just behind me, I'm just like, this is my life now. I want my mom. It's just like, you know, it's not cool. And normally a prostate exam is like very quick. It's like, it's one to three seconds. It's like, boop, boop, that's it. Like, you know, in and out. So all they're trying to do is determine is, are, does this cause you abject pain? And do they feel anything weird in there? It's just not long. It's like three seconds in and out. This dude was like digging for gold or some shit. Just like, like tickling it. Like, you know, just like weird. It's like, I cannot express to you the difference between a three-second prostate exam and a 10-second one, all right? Those seven seconds are crucial, and they mean all the world, all right? So like, he's like, all right, well, I don't see anything abnormal here. We're going to have to get you back in. 
uh, down the line for cystoscopy, which if you don't know, that's when you're awake and they numb your dick and then uh, thumb, uh, like, yeah, they put a camera down the pee hole. So that happened. That's, like, that's a different story, but whatever. That's too much trauma to go into. Uh, but he's like, all right, here's what I want you to do. Uh, for the next couple, you know, until we do the cystoscopy, try not to go to the bathroom more than once every two hours. If you can avoid it, unless it's an emergency, don't do that. Also, when you go to the bathroom, this is what I want you to do. Don't go to the urinal. I want you to go to the stall, sit down, pee that way, and then when you're done, you think you're done, just sit there for another minute or two, let everything relax, let it come out, all right? Now, let's analyze what happened to me that day. <laughs> I went into a small enclosed room. A large black man entered. He bent me over. He put something in my ass, and then he told me that from now on, I sit down to pee, all right? <laughs> that is not a doctor's appointment. That is the first season of Oz, all right? That is what happened to me, all right? And I'll let you know that uh, I peed sitting down twice and then decided, you know what, I'll just go with the inconvenience. This is worth the dignity. And I finally figured out through no medical help, my own system, that if I thought about the US presidents in order while I peed, I was able to finally do it. So like for years, I had just gone Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, like that, like that's just how I'm doing it. And that is how I stand before you. And uh, dad, it's not usually like this. I usually talk about like race in America, but today it was like a piece story so I hope you enjoyed that and uh, yeah this is what I do in my life thank you for coming all right you guys have all been great I'm West Hazard thank you whoever West Hazard West Hazard um now is a time where you get to decide what stories get a redo West Hazard and the urologist Will Noonan and Dave Coulier. Woo! Laura Severs and Axel Rose. Woo! Will Noonan! Will Noonan and Dave Coulier. So. All right, so the redo crew redo is crew. going to go, and, um, and, uh, and then what are we going to do? Huh? What are we going to do? Oh, I was going to go home. What? Oh, what no! <laughs> um, do you do karaoke? I've done it before. Um... Like forced karaoke, or you're like, I'm gonna do this. No, I've done like when I used to drink, I I've done it, thinking I'm having a good time, but I was just drunk. So that's you know how alcohol works like that. Um, for me, yeah. Is drinking and having a good time separate? (laughs) For me, for me, yes. Well, probably for me too, and I just am not ready to say so. Um, my my song was um, "Kiss from a Rose." Ooh! I it was, but um, it's one of those things where <laughs> this will be funny, and then like after the first chorus, you're like, "There's a little mountain in front of me, baby." To me, it's like a contradiction that I get a night. Won't you tell me you're healthy, babe? But did you know? And when it's done, my eyes become light, and the light that you shine can be seen. Baby! Right? That's fun. You see how short I did that? Yeah. That song's at least three and a half minutes long. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been kissed 
there's a round. Yes, like, yes. It's a long song. It's a long song. So too. if you're not into it, it's it's rough. But yeah, oh, karaoke. I've done it before. I. You know what's a die. horrible song to do? I thought it was funny. Uh, uh, what's new, Pussycat? It's just a weird thing to sing loud at strangers. What's new? What's new? Because first of all, Tom Jones yells at everybody. Oh yeah, he does. What's new? What? It's a very aggressive song, and then he has a little. Pussycat, pussycat, I love you. Yeah, what? <laughs> He's the original Lil John. That's what Tom Jones. <laughs> Anytime someone asks you, like, says something to you and you don't hear them, just give them the Tom Jones. Like, ask me a question. Uh, Nick, what do you what do you think about um, Sting's new album? What? <laughs> Maybe. Lil John was like a huge Tom Jones fan. <laughs> can you imagine? Can you picture Lil John like, and he's like, yo, put that joint on again. Yo, throw on, throw on that listen to Pussycat. Yeah, I want to hear that Pussycat song. <laughs> what? Ring, ding, 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 ding. He's probably like, Man, John, I don't know what's going on with John, man. <laughs> He just locked himself in the house all day, listening to fucking Tom Jones. <laughs> Not unusual. <laughs> what the hell is going on? <laughs> ready. Are you ready for like, Will yeah. Noonan and Dave Coulier. You guys give it up for the, the redo, 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 redo crew. Hey, Will. It's me, uh, your girlfriend, and. I want to let you know there's too much hot dick in LA and I can no longer be with you. Oh, I'm Will Noonan. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I'm sorry. The dicks are just so huge and not yours. <laughs> They're so sh sunshiny. Oh, literal hot dick. Oh, man, this is rough. Bye. Oh, man, this is so hard. This is the worst day ever. I gotta be on live TV in two days. What am I gonna do? Hey, I'm Dave Coulier. Is this where the comedy show is? Uncle Joey? Oh, it's me. You better believe it or not. Cut it out. just left me for all this hot L.A. dick. Why don't you stop being such a pussy and marry me? What do you say? You want to marry Uncle Joey? That's not weird at all, is it? How rude. But yes. Oh, Yes, we wanted to give a shout out to the radio crew. Give it up for the very talented. Katie McCarthy, Mark, Mark Gallagher, Gallagher Tookie Cavanaugh. Thank you so much for coming out.
that is our episode. Thanks to our storytellers. And thanks to the Rockwell staff, the Rockwell Theater in Davis Square, Somerville, Massachusetts. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. At Starstruck Stories. If you have a story about an awkward encounter of your own, send us a pitch at starstruckpodcast at gmail.com. Who knows? Maybe you could be part of one of our live shows. You know it. Join us again for Starstruck Close Encounters of the Awkward Kind. The awkward is real.